As we begin our prayer this morning, I'd like to begin with these words from Psalm 138. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down towards your holy temple. And I give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to your name. And on the day I called, you didst answer me, and you made me bold with strength in my soul. Father, we're thankful that it is through the Word of God that we are made strong. It is through the Word of God that we are taught the ways of God. And Lord, I pray that your Word will be lifted up today and empowered by your Spirit, not just here but throughout this complex this morning. Father, we thank you that as we gather together in Jesus' name this morning, that you're here present with us. And Father, you understand each of our unique personalities and the needs which are in our hearts. And we pray, Father, you will meet those needs and that our spirits and souls will be lifted up in joy to you. I thank you for your peace and for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. I like to read at verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. Throughout most of the conquest, Israel had operated out of their base at Gilgal, down in the Jordan Valley, not far from Jericho. In the years immediately following the conquest, Israel had no political capital. Now for us who are accustomed to county seats, and state capitals and national capitals, we whoa, you know, how can a people have no political capital? But we have to understand that the people were tribal and that they were ruled by their tribal elders. As a nation, they were at best a confederacy, a confederation of 12 tribes. That what linked them was, of course, their common ancestry and their common faith. Since Joshua was the only person at this time who had any real uh, inter-tribal political authority, it's possible that in years following the conquest that they considered Timnath Sarah, which was his hometown where he was living now, to, to be sort of a, a, a de facto capital of sorts. We can only assume that. The scripture does not make any such statement. But we need to realize, of course, that Joshua was not empowered to create a dynasty of leaders. He, his son was not to be the leader of Israel after him. In fact, as you move into the book of Judges, you discover that God was in the process of raising up what are known as charismatic leaders, using that term in the proper sense of its use. Individuals who were raised up to lead Israel for a given period of time, and then when they were dead, another person would be raised up, and it was not usually a father, son, or any kind of a family relationship between the leaders. And since Israel was not politically united anyway, 
it was only through their religion that any geographical location had any national prominence or precedence. So wherever the tabernacle was, that was the spiritual capital of Israel. And it would be the only town in Israel that had any significance over other towns. You remember, of course, at this time, Jerusalem is not even in Israelite hands. They do not even possess Jerusalem. And so it is not their capital during this time of the conquest and through the time of the period of the judges. So, when Joshua chose to give the first portion of his farewell speech, he chose to go to the spiritual capital, that is, to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was set up. At least that's what we assume. It doesn't specifically say in Joshua, but that's the most logical uh, location. And, and there he gave the speech that we find recorded in the 23rd chapter of Joshua. But as we have moved to the 24th chapter, we've discovered that he's changed venues and he has moved north to the town of Shechem. Now Shechem was chosen for reasons which I explained when we talked about that a couple of Sundays ago. Several milestones in Israelite spiritual journey had been put down there at Shechem. And Shechem was the place where the, the law was carved in stone. And I mentioned to you that it's very probable that as Joshua delivered the final portion of his farewell address, he used that carved carving of the, of the word of, of the law there as a backdrop for his final speech, which we are reading in this 24th chapter of Isaiah. As we noted last Sunday towards the end of our time together, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 24 record the heart of Joshua's message to his people. I mean, it all either leads up to those two verses or flows from those two verses as you read the rest of the 24th chapter. The words, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, mark the watershed of Israel's history at the time of the occupation of the land and immediately following. Their record of their service to God from the time they left Egypt until this moment that we're talking about here is a rather blem <clears throat> blemished record, as we have noted, as we studied through the life of Moses and, and then into the conquest. They failed on many occasions, and God was, was forced to bring punishment upon his people. But through it all, God had proven himself to be faithful, and he had proven himself to be powerful on their behalf. He had kept every promise, and we noted that more than once in, in Joshua, uh, it was stated that God kept every single one of his promises to Israel. Not a single one of his promises failed. However, he had not fulfilled his promise of bringing Israel into Canaan just so that they could blissfully while away their time in peace and prosperity. You probably are well aware of the fact that it has been for the last oh, 20 or 25 years, maybe a little more than that, there's been a uh, so-called prosperity gospel which has been taught in this country and I'm sure other places too about how the fact that if, if you're a child of God, you're a child of the king, and therefore you should live like a prince or a princess, and you know, no, all good things should be in your hands at all times, and you should never be sick, and you should never be poor, and all these kinds of things. Well, 
God didn't put us here on this planet to just live in blissful prosperity as if we were already in heaven because we're not in heaven yet. We're here to serve Him and to serve Him through the hard times. And you probably have noticed that they come fairly frequently. And some of those hard times have to do with our financial status. Some of those hard times have to do with our physical status, our emotional status, our family. I mean, you could go on and on, I'm sure, with a list of issues that come along. And all of those are really necessary to drive our roots deep into the Lord, into His Word, into our faith in Him. Obviously, if, if life was nothing but a bed of roses, we would have very shallow roots. Well, life isn't a bed of roses. And so God's plan for them was that they would participate in the bringing of redemption to this planet. They were chosen as his people through whom he would minister to the world. And they were to accept their role without hesitancy and without indifference. And that is part of Joshua's challenge here. Therefore, they were to choose whether they were going to follow Joshua's example of wholehearted commitment to God or not. I mean, the or not is right there. As we read from uh, 1 Kings last week, Elijah said to the people on the top of Mount Carmel, choose, don't hesitate, don't limp around between two. You know, choose God or choose Baal, but choose. <laughs> Sitting on the fence will not be acceptable. Of course, we see that in, in Revelation, don't we, in the third chapter, where God speaks to the church at Laodicea, and he says, you people are yucky lukewarm. You're right smack down the middle. You got one foot in the kingdom of God and the other foot in the world, and you're trying to live that way. He says, I would rather you be either hot or cold. Choose God or Baal. Get off the fence. The choice was theirs to make. And what is significant is that the ramifications were eternal. If they chose to serve the Lord, they were to do it with all their heart and to completely reject anything having to do with any or all of the gods of their fathers who lived beyond the river, meaning the Euphrates, or of the gods of Egypt or of the gods of the surrounding Amorites. They had to give them all up. And the wording implies that there were Israelites who were still practicing that worship. You don't have to give up something you don't have, right? The Israelites were called the children of God because God had chosen them to receive his revelation and to witness of his reality and truth to the world. Now, we must not view Israel as a corporate whole, but we must view Israel as a body of individuals. And they, individually, they were not God's chosen people unless they had personally committed themselves to fear Him and to serve Him. I'd like to turn back to the ninth chapter of Romans, reading at verse 6. Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh 
who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. To have been physically descended from Abraham did not guarantee that they were the children of God. To have been physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not guarantee that they were the children of God. It reminds me, I, I suppose as it does for you, that there are many people in the broader area known as Christendom, many of whom belong to a large corporate church, and they believe that they were, because they were baptized as an infant into that church, that their souls are eternally guaranteed, regardless of how they live their lives. And, and, and that is just not the way it is. And, and the scripture is replete with many examples that it is the personal choice of each individual that leads to that person's eternal status before God. The point I'm trying to make is it isn't automatic. It wasn't automatic. Just because they were descended from Abraham and Jacob, they were not necessarily a spiritual descendant of Abraham. So let's look at Galatians. Paul goes on in Galatians to um, further enlighten us on this point. Galatians chapter 3 at verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Now go to the 29th verse of that same chapter. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So you and I are more descended from Abraham than were the Israelites then who rejected faith in God. The Israelites who did not accept and follow God but chose to go with the gods that were around them are less descended from Abraham than you and I, even though we may have no blood connection with Abraham whatsoever. Because blood connection doesn't save. It is the spiritual connection that saves. Let's turn back to the third chapter of Luke. <clears throat> now these are the words of John the baptizer, John the Baptist, in, in Luke chapter 3, here at verse 7. He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, by the way, that's a very insulting statement he's making there. He's not, it's not tongue-in-cheek. Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. <laughs> See, that's how important blood descent from Abraham was. God could make people out of rocks who are descended from Abraham. So what's the big deal? If you don't have fruits in your life in keeping with repentance, then your protestation to have been descended from Abraham is meaningless, John was saying to those that were coming out to hear him in the wilderness. 
One of the things we discover from the Old Testament is that the Ishmaelites and the, Idi and, and, and the Midianites were descended from Abraham. And we know that the Edomites were descended from Isaac. And of course, if you, if you know the story of Islam, they, they claim that. You know, they claim descent from Ishmael. And they say that Ishmael was the truly beloved and important son. And, and, and therefore, that is their, their claim to their right to God in their sense. But where do you find in Scripture any place where it says that the Midianites or the Edomites or the Ishmaelites were the children of God. There is no such statement in Scripture. Now, individual ones will come to the Lord. In fact, when you read in the days of David the king, there were certain members of those tribes who served in his army as faithful followers of David. But those are individuals who came to the Lord. As a people, those other tribes were never called the children of God. So being descended from Abraham, what did that really mean? Or Isaac or Jacob? So Joshua here was challenging his people to become spiritual descendants of Abraham because that's what mattered. To say that Abraham was your great ancestor was meaningless if you didn't walk as Abraham the believer walked. The choice was theirs. But Joshua made it crystal clear that whatever their choice, he had chosen to serve Yahweh. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So who is Joshua like? Joshua is like Enoch. Joshua is like Noah, Abraham, Moses. He walks in the steps of the spiritual giants. Although he was a man of great humility, as were all of those individuals, that's one of the traits of a spiritual giant, is that they don't view themselves as a spiritual giant because humility cloaks them. You and I face the same choice. We must either serve God or we will serve mammon. There isn't any other choice. We will serve God or we will serve the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, we must make the choice to go the route, but we have to continually make the choice, not in terms of determining our eternal destiny, but to keep ourselves on the right path. Because the fact that we chose to follow God does not mean that we are now immune to the attacks of the world and the flesh and the devil, you may have noticed. <laughs> They're ever too present. If we choose to fear the Lord and serve Him, we are the children of God. Flat, simple, clear, we are the children of God. You all know John 1.12 where we read, But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those that believe in his name. One of the great promises of Scripture. Now, to receive God into our lives is to be indwelt by him. If he indwells us, the scripture tells us we are new creatures in Christ. And we not only therefore believe in, in him as Savior, but we serve him. We serve him. Those two conditions cannot be separated. Belief and service are linked. We cannot say we believe, but we don't serve. 
We hear this, though, often. People will say, well, I've taken Jesus as my Savior, but I've not yet taken him as my Lord. Well, it doesn't come in pieces like that. No. If we believe, we serve. If we don't serve, we don't believe. Let, let me read um, a passage, I think, which is very clear on this. First uh, John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, the first six verses. My little children. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean John's writing to little kids here, even though little children, of course, can read it. But that's his way of looking at uh, those that are under his care. I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. That doesn't mean universal salvation. It simply means that all the sins of the world are covered for those who will take that satisfaction, accept that propitiation. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How do we know we've come to know him? If we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. I mean, you know, this is the word of God and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now certainly John would be the first one to say that we don't walk perfectly as Christ walked. But it is our plan and our goal and our commitment to walk as he walked if his love is in our hearts. Now it doesn't mean that sometimes we don't walk off on a side trail because every one of us has been on a side trail at some time or another. It doesn't mean that we don't cool in our ardor and, and get ourselves uh, so absorbed in something else that, that we begin to neglect the things of God. It, it happens. But if you look at the course of our lives, the course of our lives should be the general path that Christ has set out before us and walking in obedience to Him. And when we are off on that rabbit trail or whatever you want to call it, we, we are convicted by the Word and we are drawn back to Him. Look at Israel. I mean, sometimes God dealt with Israel pretty harshly. And 24,000 of them died out in the wilderness, you know. But they came back and they walked with him. And, and that is, our, our lives are a microcosm of that, actually, if we're honest. Joshua's challenge here is fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. The fear and serve are connected the fear, and it doesn't say fear the Lord or serve him in sincerity and truth. It says, and they are connected together. The choice is one. The choice is one, and it has two aspects, fear and serve. But it is one choice. They are inseparable. If some think that they can be saved and ignore obedience, they've missed the whole point of Scripture. And that person is biblically defined still in his or her sin. And I, I think this is where a lot of the argument, and I'm <laughs> not going to get into it today, about whether you can lose your salvation or not, I think where a lot of that is rooted, 
It's rooted in the person who, who did the, the public thing, maybe, but there was no transformation of the heart. And therefore, there was no fear and serve ever built into that life. Well, let's, let's read on in Joshua chapter 24, verse 16. And the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. Joshua's message struck home to his people. And Joshua's message struck home to his people for, I think, at least three reasons. First, it was delivered in total sincerity by someone who truly loved his people. Joshua loved his people. Now, you and I know that loving people is not an easy task. Sometimes we can love people and other times it's a strain, to say the least. Joshua didn't love his people because they were so wonderful. He didn't love his people because they were so obedient. He loved his people because he had come to know God in such a way that the attributes of God were rubbing off on him. And he was sharing the love of God that God had placed in his heart. It's very difficult for you or for me to minister to anyone effectively for whom God does not give us love. Scripture tells us that God is love. That's one of his great attributes. And uh, if, if we, uh, for example, the, the, fire, the preacher who gets up and preaches fire and brimstone, uh, if, if he's preaching fire and brimstone simply because he has this, this kind of a chip-on-the-shoulder attitude and he's, you know, he, he thinks he's some kind of a scourge, that's probably not going to be very effective. But if he's preaching it because he loves these people and does not want to see them perish, then God will use it. You know, so many times we hear references to Jonathan Edwards' great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which when it was delivered so frightened the audience that people were literally hanging on to the church poles. But they felt like they were going to slip into hell. And like, when's the last time you heard a sermon like that? <laughs> but Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon that way because he cared for these people and he didn't want to see them perish. And what, it, what was really powerful about the Great Awakening especially in, in New England and particularly in Jonathan Edwards' ministry, was the, the prayer that was behind it. I mean, they had prayer going on in the, while the service was going on. There was a prayer meeting going on in the basement, praying for that service. And I don't mean a prayer meeting of four people. There were 400 praying while the service was going on. I mean, that makes a huge difference. Secondly, Joshua's life backed up his testimony. You, we've all heard the little phrase that uh, your, your, uh, your, your deeds speak so loud we can't hear your words or something to that you know, effect. He had served God wholeheartedly. Joshua had continued to lead this people in the strength of God. And it was obvious to everyone in the whole nation of Israel that God and his 
<coughs> I'm sorry, that Joshua and his family were fully committed to God. Now, Joshua had demonstrated great unselfishness and had sought no glory for himself. And of course, one of the primary examples of his unselfishness we talked about a few weeks back, and that was when it came to claiming a homestead. Joshua didn't say, hey, I'm the leader, so let me have first pick to the best homestead in this whole country. He waited until everybody had gotten their homestead, and then he picked one from what was left. And so he ended up with Timnath Sarah. Now, of course, I, I'm a firm believer that God put it in his heart to do that, and God therefore made sure people didn't pick one that he wanted Joshua to have. And even though it's not one of the prime pieces of real estate in Israel today, it probably was in, acceptable at least. Joshua was a man whose life so spoke of his faith that people listened to his words. Thirdly, and I think probably most importantly, the Holy Spirit drove the point home. No matter how truthful or how emotional a message may be, and you probably have sat under those kinds of messages. I've sat under very emotional messages and I was turned off because I felt that the emotion was trumped up, man-made, that it was not truly an emotion that came from a broken heart before God. But I've also heard messages which were very calm, very quiet, you know, in, in the sense that there was no emotion demonstrated and yet you could tell it was flowing from a heart that, that knew God and, and longed for this message to transform. And, you know, it cuts to the heart of your being. It's the Spirit of God. Spiritual fruit can only be produced by the work of the Holy Spirit. It can only be produced by the work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, if you're listening to the greatest preacher in the land. It doesn't matter if you're reading the greatest book in the land. Nothing's going to happen unless the Spirit's at work. Nothing happens here in this class unless the Spirit of God is here, unless He's working in our hearts, and it's going to be different for each of us. Some of us may come to class and our minds are a thousand miles away because, you know, of certain problems we're dealing with or, or we're wishing we're out on the lake or doing something else rather than being here, and, and, the, and, and often, you know, there's nothing to, to touch you because, not you individually, but, you know, whoever that might fit, because there's this glaze, you know. <laughs> I'm here, but I'm not here, you know. And yet another uh, might come not knowing what God is going to do, and, and God touches that heart. Others come with great expectation. And, you know, if we come with great expectation, even if, if what is presented is dull and, and uh, you know, not very inspiring, God could speak to our hearts because it's the openness of our heart and the reality of God that makes a difference. God is the author of all good things. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. If you receive a, a gift from God today, it's His gift. It's not that of the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or of anyone else, or even your friend who gives you a word of encouragement or a word of advice this morning that, is, that God uses. It's God working through us. I was listening a little bit this morning to uh, Dr. Uh, Lutzer, and he was saying that sometimes he was talking on the phone to somebody, and some of you probably heard this this morning, and, and he's saying, oh, Lord, what am I going to say to this person? And he ends up giving them a beautiful piece of, of divinely inspired wisdom, and he says, later, I wish I'd recorded that to say what, you know, <laughs> to, to remember what I said that was so good, you know, because it was God working through him to, to touch that life. 
And, and that's where, you know, that's what Joshua is. Joshua is an open channel. I've mentioned this before, but I've often seen our lives as sort of like a, a pipe, a conduit through which God works. And if that pipe has, you know, arterial sclerosis or whatever it is where you get all clogged up with gunk in there like an artery or something, uh, then not much is getting through. But if God can give you kind of a spiritual rotor-rooter action here and blow that pipe out so that he can move through it, then, then we can be conduits of blessing in whatever the environment might be. And so it was with Joshua here. God worked through him because he was a man who was in tune with God. And when he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, that's not just a little phrase. That's a powerful statement of where he stood. In Titus 3.5 we read, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done even in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The people replied to Joshua's challenge with great enthusiasm. You may have noted as we read through there. This was no half-hearted, lukewarm response. Let me read verse 16 again. And the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We will follow you, Joshua. We and our houses will serve the Lord too. Why were they so enthusiastic about choosing the Lord over other gods? Because the other gods had images you could see, you could touch them. Your, your empirical powers were employed. They were very appealing to the senses. And many times the worship was very fitting with the lusts of the flesh. It was because they knew that no other God could have done the impossible that Yahweh had done in bringing this people out of bondage in Egypt. I mean, to go back to that, it was so incredible that a people who had for hundreds of years been incorporated as slaves within a society, and as far as Egypt was concerned, they would be forever there as slaves, should be ripped out of that context and moved out across the Red Sea by the parting of the water and, and brought to the base of Mount Sinai. Who could have thought it? Who could have dreamed it up? How could it have been? Could not have been by Isis. No, could not have been by Osiris. Could not have been by any of the Egyptian gods, but only by the God of Israel. The work that the Lord had done was unprecedented in history. The miracles he had brought forth in defeating the Egyptians and in defeating the Amorites and in giving them the land of Canaan proved beyond a doubt that he alone was God. Thus, the people proclaimed it like Joshua and his family, we too will serve the Lord. Read from Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. 
even from eternity, I am He. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act. And who can reverse it? Proclamation of the omnipotent God. Well, next week we'll, we'll move on and, and finish off the 24th chapter of Joshua.